0: Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk, I'm Erica,
1: I'm Sarah, and I'm Steve. (laughs) So we are in the midst of this series talking about the different genres of the Bible, or genres in the Bible might be more accurate. So we have already talked about um, the early books of the Bible, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As well as all of those historical books, like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles... And whatnot. Yeah, so on and so forth. So where are we looking at today, Steve? So
2: today we're going to take a look at... um what's sometimes called wisdom literature, which might be a helpful description, but it's also going to overlap with a category we might talk about as poetry. Um, this is a point at which, like, the, the the chronology of the story of God's people kind of stops. We kind of did that before. You get Torah mm-hmm. goes, like, beginning, you know, from in the beginning to uh, getting to the promised land and then all the years in the promised land and the divided kingdom. That That's a story, and the Bible does have story, but it also has books that don't fit that Uh, pattern but are either poetic and are like songs we'll talk about them when we have a whole conversation about the book we call the psalms Um, but also books that are poetic and like are reflective about the nature of life this is like closer to maybe like the philosophical and lifestyle life coaching (laughs) section of the bible Um, not exactly Um, but there are several books and they come from really a variety of authors and styles even within themselves but they are books that are less about let me tell you a story and more about here's what i think the good life is or here's what our collective good life is um so this would include help me out with a list of what books we might include in what are categorized as wisdom um often the book of proverbs is put in that category Mm -hmm um Ecclesiastes yeah. uh, which is sometimes called by its fancy Hebrew name Kohelet um, what else is in that list
1: um, Job Okay can be considered part of that list um, mm-hmm. that some people might consider as part of history but I would categorize it under wisdom
2: And poetry. part of that is the whole we, we don't have to spend the whole time unpacking the plot of Job here but most of that book <laughs> is speeches of characters who are speaking in poetry and again like yes. in mm-hmm. your English Bible you might not identify it because it doesn't rhyme and we're used to English poetry rhyming, Um, but you can usually see in an English translation that there are lines that are set off like poetry Mm -hmm. and we'll talk in a little bit about the rules for how hebrew poetry works it's different but it's still poetry um but most of that book is even when it's people talking about things or or it's it's uh describing an event or a story it's all in poetry Mm -hmm. so the same way that you treat a musical different than um know like the the way you treat the musical hamilton different than a biography about alexander hamilton and be like yeah no this is poetry same Mm -hmm. thing with joe maybe
0: and then there's one more that
1: we... Uh, song of Solomon. Yes. Or Song of Songs. It's, whatever you want to call it. It's,
2: it's usually, like in your Bible, it'll just say song at the top because we all disagree, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, yeah, which is a whole other weird animal too. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so maybe we should start with, for all this diverse literature, what are things that are in common or what are things that are, are helpful guideposts overall? And then maybe we can talk about some of the specific when you're wading through Ecclesiastes, how is that different than wading through Proverbs?
0: Well, I think part of it, I mean, the reason that we call these wisdom books mm-hmm. is because that's what they impart to us. Like okay. you said, Steve, they're not history, they're not story, yeah. but things like um, Proverbs, especially, you know, they're just little snippets,
2: yeah.
0: um, kind of like Confucius things, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, um, religious and Christian and, and Jewish um, that are are meant to impart wisdom to us.
2: And I I like the way you said it. Like, in a way that's different from, like, the stories we talked about. We said before, the the storytelling about figures like, you know, Abraham to David to whomever are... Um, unapologetic in showing flaws and mess ups mm-hmm. of all those characters and just because Abraham does something doesn't mean it's a good idea for us to do And and biblical yeah. writers don't make that claim they're not saying Abraham did it so I guess it's okay or David did it I guess it's okay the, the point of those stories is to say look at these mess ups and how God loves mess ups anyway um, mm-hmm. but the wisdom literature really is more to say here's what I think is a smart thing to do um, and I guess maybe it's it's worth saying that wisdom, or at least the wisdom of the the various wisdom writers in the Bible, says that there are things that are important in life that are not. Um, money and power and what Mm -hmm. you usually use as the markers of success. Like, usually, the wisdom writers have a different perspective and say, no, what really matters, a life that is really well-lived is, and they offer an alternative set of values, um, knowing that it's been, since time immemorial, tempting to judge the value of your life based on money and power and success and pleasure. And the writers of all these wisdom books sort of have a a different way of answering, maybe, but they would all say, no, there's something more about what the meaning of life is. Mm
0: -hmm even uh, I'm looking at Proverbs chapter 1, which is like the, the main probably wisdom book of all these. Uh-huh. And even it, it starts off um, in verse two for the learning for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning and, and discerning acquire skill. Understand a proverb and a figure of the words of the wise and their riddles. So, I mean, it literally tells you this is what this is for. Right? It's for us to gain wisdom and how to live a godly life.
2: And it's it's interesting, like that the answers in wisdom literature. Are especially like the Book of Proverbs are different in emphasis maybe than say like uh, even like the uh, book that is full of advice or directions like Leviticus, which is all mm-hmm. here's all the rules for you know uh, purity and here's how you offer your sacrifices and here's how you offer your prayers and wisdom without saying that's unimportant. It's sort of like okay that's Leviticus's deal, but. Here, you know, here's how to live your life that doesn't involve sacrifice. Right? Here's here, mm-hmm. and and uh, it's more like in your day to day life. It turns out God cares about that too. So it's not the the wisdom literature's perspective is maybe that every moment of our life matters to God, mm-hmm. and that there's not some sacred-secular split between, well, the things that you do on Sunday for Christians or Saturday on Sabbath for uh, ancient Israel, those things are what God cares about the rest of your life. Who mm-hmm. But, like, the wisdom literature sort of sees all of life, even down to the mundane stuff of how you run your business and how you raise your kids and things like that, is these things matter to God. And what
1: I, I really like about Proverbs in particular, and the wisdom literature is that it is poetry. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why we talk about wisdom and poetry mm-hmm. together is because there's so much overlap that this Proverbs, which, as you just read, Erica, is about instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do it in poetry format, which I find more interesting to read than if we we're just reading a mismanaged poem.
2: Well, and, and that's helpful. Like, uh, how, how do as you hear it, what difference does it make to know you're reading something that is poetic as opposed to reading straight-up exposition?
1: Uh, that so a common theme in Hebrew poetry is the um, repetition. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and often, um, like you see it a lot in the Psalms of something like the, like I think it's Psalm ninety one has something about you'll step on a snake and then like two lines down you'll step on an adder, right? Which is a type of snake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it's um kind of repeats itself but in a slightly different way and that's a common poetry, Hebrew poetry thing. And you'll find that, I believe in. Proverbs. Oh, all,
2: the, all over. the. In fact, mm-hmm. I think you've hit on like the defining thing of Hebrew poetry, whether it's in the book of Psalms or Proverbs or whatever. It's often called parallelism and the idea is, instead of rhyming words like we're used to, it's almost like rhyming ideas. Mm-hmm. And so, like, at random, I've opened my Bible to Proverbs and, like, here's a fantastic example, literally just where I happened to open it up. Proverbs 620 goes, My child, keep your father's commandment and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Right? So this is getting across basically the same idea in two sentences. It's not, mm-hmm. these are two unconnected thoughts but the idea is, listen to the advice you get from your parents. Mm-hmm. And so the first half says it with father, the second half says it with mother, and the first half says it positively, keep your commandments, and the other says do not ignore. But the idea is the same, basically repeated. Um, that's an, uh, an example of what's sometimes called um, I think, antithetical parallelism, where the first half says something, and the other sort of like puts the same idea, but in the negative. So, mm-hmm. keep your father's commandment, and don't ignore your mother's advice, is basically saying the same thing, but the, think of it as like rhyming ideas
1: there, there's an interesting um misunderstanding of the hebrew parallelism that's found in the gospels Oh, okay um, oh yeah one, one of the uh, prophecies about jesus talks about a king riding into jerusalem on a horse and on a, and a the, cult, and full a of a donkey right right and so, one of the Gospels has Jesus somehow riding into Jerusalem, riding On animals. two animals, yeah,
2: whereas Mark and Luke just have, they got him on a donkey, and it was a donkey, they borrowed the donkey. Yeah. Matthew actually mentions there being two animals, and quotes the the, the 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 bit from the the Psalms about there being, you know, on a donkey, and on a foal, the colt of a donkey, and you're left kind of, and some artists have tried to paint Jesus like, almost like water ski standing on <laughs> two animals, trying to be like, this is how Matthew describes it, this is what it is. Darn it, when no, it, it's parallelism, it's a donkey, you know, mm-hmm. the fall of a donkey, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, that's important just as, as a concept to note because it means when you're reading a sentence, especially the Proverbs, which are often meant to be like standalone. I don't want to call them one-liners or usually two-liners, but, like, where it's, like, a short little thought mm-hmm. that usually there's, like, a, a pivot point, a halfway point, and you're going to see the same idea at the top either furthered or developed or contrasted, but it's one basic thought. Um, and if you know that going in, you're not going to try and see this as, oh, these are two separate ideas. Oh, no, the second half is meant to be reinforcing the first half or strengthening or emphasizing or sometimes by contrast, that kind of thing. Like, sometimes the parallel in contrast will be the wise does this and the fools do this, this, and it, again, it's the same idea but giving you a positive and a negative example. It's still parallelism, but now it's sort of you know, it's, it's like the old Goofus and Gallant comic strips from Highlights magazine when I was a kid. Like, mm-hmm. don't be like Goofus, he doesn't help set the table. Be like Gallant, he helps set the table. Mm-hmm. And like it's really, you know, childish to be honest, but it gets the idea across and um, kids learn manners that way, I guess. And Proverbs sometimes does that kind of a, don't be like the sluggard, be like the wise person. Mm-hmm. Don't be like the ant, be like the grass, or don't be like a the grasshopper, grasshopper. <laughs> be like the ant. That kind of thing.
0: And something else I've, I've seen in reading through this wisdom literature, and I think it, it kind of comes out with the verse that you quoted from, um, Proverbs chapter 60, is that, you know, we, we talked about how this is different than like reading like the laws of Leviticus. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. The Le- Leviticus tells you what to do, and I feel like the wisdom literature tells you kind of how to mm. do it and like how to apply the law that sure. you find in Leviticus and some of the other uh, books of the Pentateuch. I'd
2: say that's 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 true. What I think is interesting is how how the Book of Proverbs only rarely will will make explicit references to like individual commandments, yeah. but more like. With an awareness, you know, follow what the law of God says, but rarely will you get, you know, as Leviticus says, but more mm-hmm. like it's floating in the air, like this is how we live kind of a thing. Yeah. Well,
0: well that verse that you quoted made me think immediately of the yeah. commandment, you know, honor your father and your mother. Yeah. This
2: is how you do right, that. Right, right, right. Um, and I'd say one of the, the positives and negatives about this kind of format is a proverb is meant to be succinct and witty and memorable so that it mm-hmm. stays with you. The, f- the flip side of that is that there's not a lot of room for nuance. It's almost like ancient yeah. Twitter. You know, that it's like, you can get a point across, but it is not a place to have a fleshed-out, nuanced, shades-of-gray argument. Mm-hmm. And the downside, or maybe the thing to be aware of, if you're the kind of person who just loves uh, Proverbs or Twitter, is that sometimes life is messier than what Mm -hmm. a proverb will allow for, or it's possible to take a proverb and assume it's an ironclad promise rather than a generally speaking kind of a thing, you know? So, like, you know, um, there are uh, bits of advice in um, proverbs about, like, the importance of hard work. You know, so, for example, that famous, be like the ant, don't be like the grasshopper, sort of a don't be lazy, but, like, the ant stores up for winter, you should prepare as well. That's good, solid advice, to prepare for the future and work hard and all that. However... There are other books, even in the Bible, in wisdom literature, that point out things like, you know what, sometimes you work hard, and somebody else still gets the fruit of it. So Mm -hmm. what's the point? Um... And there's a whole other book that takes a look at that, uh, at the meaning of life, even when things don't make sense or aren't fair, called Ecclesiastes. And I I, I guess I think it's important to note that our Bible contains both, this sort of Mm -hmm. like Twitter-like, short and sweet, be good and good things will happen to you, be fair and life will go well for you kind of perspective, but also that Ecclesiastes is like existentialism in the Bible. He's Mm -hmm. he's like this, what's the point of anything? Life is just a breath. Um, And yeah, work hard, but... Somebody else could still get all the value of all that you work for. You could teach your kids to do a good job and they still screw up. Um, and it's it's written from the perspective of somebody who had managed the whole kingdom and seen everything and tried to find the meaning in life and discovered that pleasure and wisdom and riches and wealth and money and power and sex, mm-hmm. none of these things were satisfying in the end. Um, and that... I think it's an important counterbalance to, to Proverbs mm-hmm. so that we don't turn Proverbs into, like, a recipe-like. But I did what the verse said. How come that everything hasn't turned mm-hmm. out great for me?
0: One of my favorite passages is Ecclesiastes 3. Yeah. Yeah, that old, um, who sang that the song? The birds, the song of the birds. Yeah, um, you know, the time for every season. And yeah, I think yeah. that really hits on the point that you're making, Steve. Like, you know, no matter how well you try to, to hold to the law or to the Proverbs and things, you know, There is a season for everything. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. Um, And and sometimes that season is great, it's wonderful, and it's joyful, and it's sunshine and rainbows, and sometimes that season is the exact opposite. That doesn't mean that, you know, it's God's punishment for you. It's just a realization that that's just kind of how life is. And
1: that those seasons don't last forever. Yes. I think that's important to hold on to when you are in those bad seasons, you Mm -hmm. know, those not pleasant seasons that, you know, this is just right now, mm-hmm. that this right mm-hmm. now, this reality that you're living in isn't going to last forever, and that's, I think, important to hold on to, yeah. like, when you're feeling depressed or you're grieving or mm-hmm. whatever it
2: is. I would even say it's an important reminder for the book of Ecclesiastes when things are going well, too, and not to be like a Debbie Downer, but to be like, don't pin the meaning of your life on having everything mm-hmm. going successful yeah. in this moment, because that... Well, when it happens, great, enjoy it. But your life has to be more than just, I'm making a lot of money, or uh, I've got the 2.5 kids in the white picket fence mm-hmm. life, or um, I finally mowed my grass to the degree I want. I mean, like, save it when you enjoy it when you got it. Yeah. But life has to be more than that.
1: Because um, yeah, your grass will grow. Yeah,
2: right, right, right. Um, and I would say too, like th- this is this is a moment I want to add my shameless promotion for recovering an important idea from Ecclesiastes that we have, I think, lost in our English translations. There's a recurring line in Ecclesiastes that often gets translated, I think, poorly vanity of vanity everything is vanity and Mm -hmm. it sounds like ecclesiastes really is like depressed suicidal existentialist Mm -hmm. like that he is soren kierkegaard of 1000 bc (laughs) life is terrible we should all just die and that's not a a really i don't think fair translation that the the word that we bring into english as vanity comes from the hebrew um uh, for vapor or breath and Mm -hmm. it means instead of Everything is pointless. More like everything is ephemeral. Everything has the, it, it's short lived, and mm-hmm. a breath only works if you can let go of it. It seems to me like that the idea is less about everything is terrible because it doesn't last, but to say life is like breath itself. It only works when you're able to let go of it, and then you take in the next one. So just like a season in life, mm-hmm. this is what it is, and then breathe it out, and the next thing will come. And you will kill yourself if you try and hold on to your breath forever. In a similar way, if you try to hold on to your possessions or your status or your you know, fill in the blank. You will die, it will, it will slowly mm-hmm. kill you. And yet, so much of human history is us trying to think, but I found a new way to clutch onto my wealth or to clutch onto my power, or to clutch onto whatever. Yep. And Ecclesiastes sort of just says, I tried it all, it's not going to work, You're, the meaning of life can't be there. And whatever life's meaning is, it's got to be somehow be able to be compatible with recognizing it is ephemeral, it, it's like a breath, it's like a vapor. And that's not a design flaw, that's how it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. Now we should also say that the book of Ecclesiastes, and probably the book of Proverbs, maybe all of the wisdom literature, is doesn't have a real fully developed sense of like afterlife or heaven or hell or things like that. The, the, the wisdom perspective of the Hebrew scriptures tends to be much more this life kind Mm -hmm. of oriented. So, like, you know, work hard because it will pay off for either you or your kids, but there's no talk about work hard so that then you'll have a better spot in heaven. That's not the way the the Hebrew Bible in general thinks and certainly not the way Proverbs or Ecclesiastes thinks. Um, It's maybe an open question or a conversation for another day how that idea of life and resurrection after death develops in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's clear in the New Testament. There are glimpses of it throughout the Old Testament, but the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs their their case for wisdom isn't be good so you can go to heaven. It's be good because that's the point of life. Yeah. Um, what else is in the wisdom literature that we should unpack a little bit?
1: Uh, probably the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. Cause that is such an interesting mm-hmm. book. Yeah. It's it's different than pretty much every other book in the Bible. Yeah. Because it is a book of love poetry. Yeah,
2: and while over the centuries some Christian theologians and writers have tried to see it only as an allegory about the love of God for humanity or Christ for the church. I think it's fair to say the writer or writers of Song of Songs don't seem to drop any hints that they're writing an allegory. They're writing an allegory, they're writing love poetry, and Mm -hmm. sometimes very explicit love poetry toward each other, Um, and they don't have an agenda of I hope later on this gets theologized to be about God and the Church or something like that. They're just this is just mm-hmm. unabashed love poetry.
0: And something to understand when when reading through this, it, it is because, like you said, it's love poetry. There's two voices going on.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a the male le- at, and female. At least two. There's sometimes like a chorus on the back. Yeah, too. but I mean, you have the, a
0: musical. <laughs> you have the male and female voice going back and forth. And I know anytime I read through this book, um, I have to keep that in mind because it doesn't it's not chapter breaks, it's not even, like, paragraph breaks necessarily, like, all yeah. of a sudden, like, you're like, wait a second, I thought this was the guy talking to the girl, and now she's refer. and I'm like, okay, wait a second, where am I at here? Yeah. Who's talking to whom?
2: Right. And it's, it's, it's worth, I think, naming, too. Like, this, the, the reason that theologians over centuries tried to make this sound like it was an allegory about Christ in the church is that there's not other, like, nuggets of wisdom about... Being a wise and prudent worker, it is just mm-hmm. love. You are you are eavesdropping on somebody else's romantic letters to one another, mm-hmm. or it, it, a, 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 that's the tamest way of describing it. And,
1: and it's not necessarily even. Love poetry between a wife and a husband, right? I mean, like, right. like it, at one point, don't they like sneak out or try to sneak somebody in or something like? like it's very like,
0: like, they're, like they're, lo- they're lovers before, like, yeah, right, leading right. to marriage. I think, but not quite. And and it's, it's it, not there yet. It's yeah. worth
2: noting too. That I mean, that's another piece too. That while again, we we in our um, pastoral mindset, if we want to advocate that everybody be well behaved and you know um, that kind of thing, like that's not this story. And there have been we should be honest, there have been lots of Uh, respectable religious voices over the centuries that have tried to sort of shoehorn Mm -hmm. this into clearly they dated for a long time they got the consent of their parents and they had a contract drawn up and they were engaged and they had the rings and then they got married and then they started writing this love letter to each other no that's not how this goes and that's our invention and if we got the hang-up on oh my goodness i blush because these people are not married yet i'm sorry that's how this story Mm -hmm. goes and to be fair, that's how a lot of the stories go in the Hebrew Bible.
0: <laughs> it's almost Romeo Juliet ish,
2: like with the like the, the, the
0: clandestine. Just you know, the, the two the families are a little
2: bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's less less of the uh, our families hate each other, but more about the can they be together kind can, of. Yeah, thing. sure, sure, sure. Um, And, I mean, what's interesting, too, is that because this is poetry rather than than a strict narrative, it sometimes requires the imagination of the reader or an editor to try and figure out what's the scene or what's the scenario, and maybe that's not important, I guess, or at least for the people who put this book together, it's Mm -hmm. just, nope, here's a bunch of love poetry, and there it is. Like, in a way that, like, if you read, you know, Shakespeare's love sonnets, you might be able to tease out a backstory, but they're not given with one so Mm -hmm. you have to guess who's he talking to and what's going on but the book of uh, Song of Songs Song of Solomon doesn't doesn't indulge us with all that narrative backdrop It, it does leave you wondering on the one hand like huh of all the things that could have gotten held on to that make it into a Bible. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, why this? And Because there's a bunch of other questions. There's lots of times, I'm sure, we've been like, boy, I wish we had an answer to this question in the Bible, or I wish there was a book that talked about mm-hmm. this. Nope, but we got a bunch of weird love poetry. <laughs> um,
1: I wouldn't even necessarily... Say good,
2: love right, right?
1: Like some of the like metaphors and right. imagery is so awkward. It's like a twelve-year-old boy writing, well,
2: and it's probably fair to say too. There are things that probably rang as compliments in the book that are not compliments us anymore. Like mm-hmm. there's a place where it talk about like her teeth are, we you know, like a pillar, and like okay, if you're trying to say that they're nice, but like I'm not sure that comes off the same way.
1: Yeah, in the seventh chapter, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine.
0: <laughs> Who that? Oh, I like the one about the, her teeth are like you's, you know, the, Oh, they're
2: right, the, all yeah. in pairs or something, <laughs> right? It's like a nice way of saying you're not missing any teeth, girl. <laughs> yeah. So that's another piece of this. this is, like, there's a uh, maybe a, this is a moment, to, and we don't mean to be bad mouthing the book of the Bible, but to say it does bring an additional layer of challenge to try and get into something that is mm-hmm. so removed from us, not just because it's poetry and we aren't good at reading poetry, but even the kinds of things you would use for comparison to us don't mm-hmm. sound like, I mean, to, to, to compare somebody that you love to a sheep, in our culture that doesn't work as well. <laughs> we don't have that, the same kind of respect for sheep, even matched sheep. But yeah, there's, that's a piece of this.
1: I think my favorite time to lift this book up is in confirmation class when you know the kids are all kind of getting a little right. bit bored. We've been talking about the laws and the commandments and, it, you know, oh, the Bible's so boring. And it's like, oh, have you read this? Right.
2: <laughs> and even though there are places where the, the metaphors or the, the, the poetic language doesn't land quite the same in no. our ears anymore, um, there are... There are lovely moments w- that still have a timelessness to them. There is this beautiful piece from Song of Solomon about... Um, that. Uh, it's, it's been set to music. It's often read in weddings, if you're mm-hmm. going to read from Song of Solomon. The set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Yeah, that his love is more powerful than flames of fire, and many waters can't quench it. I mean, there's something beautiful about that. And very clearly there, mm-hmm. it is romantic love. I I, I almost feel like... That, that's a passage that makes sense to read at weddings and mm-hmm. not 1 Corinthians 13 that everybody uses at weddings about yeah. love is patient, love is kind, which is, these are true things about love, but when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 13, he's not picturing using this in a marriage ceremony. He's saying, like, this is the standard for all of our relationships mm-hmm. with everybody, not spouses or not just spouses, and we've turned that into, oh, this is just how spouses are supposed to feel toward each other, and no, like, that's the bare minimum for all of us all mm-hmm. the time. Um, and but yeah, Song of Songs does have this particular. This is this is about romance kind of a thing.
1: And one last thing for me about Song of Solomon is I do really like how confident the woman voice is. Yeah, yeah. That um, in the first chapter, you know, out she she straight up says, "I am black and beautiful," and it, she go, goes on a little bit about how. Mm-hmm.
2: Right, right. goes she, on to describe her own beauty.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that is fantastic. Because that's how the book starts. She starts with self-love uh-huh. before she even really goes into deep about how she's inviting this guy.
0: Right, right, right. And while we've talked about strong women on this podcast before, throughout scripture, you don't have anybody that quite comes at it.
1: Quite this way, huh? It,
0: it's like the subtle strength. Like right. Right, Ruth and Esther and, and others where this is just... You know
2: what? This is who I am. I love myself, and this, you know, right. I think that's an important reminder, to that when there are other conversations in the Bible about the value of humility, that doesn't negate that humility isn't isn't woe is me. I'm terrible. I'm rotten. I'm nothing. Yeah. But to be able to say these are things that are good about me, and to be and and. To be able to, to say those and to celebrate them to be like this is this is mm-hmm. God made me well, and that 's a good thing that the psalms will later say i 'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and th- that's mm-hmm. meant to be like a yeah that that's part of the human experience and sometimes especially maybe in some Protestant circles um we can be so focused on saying we're sinners in need of forgiveness that we almost make it like we forget that at the beginning of creation God says it's good the whole thing's good, it's good, good uh-huh. um, and that that doesn't get undone or forgotten or erased uh, for all the ways we mess up and that uh-huh. both are true at the same time and, and I think, in a way, like that's a part of what all of the wisdom literature is wrestling with, is that there are things that are good and beautiful about this life and things that are terrible about this life and about ourselves and our impulses and uh, the, the relationships that we have. And each of them tries to come at, how do I deal with that in different ways? The Proverbs sort of treat it like, well, on the whole, if you act in this way, good things will happen, so mm-hmm. act in this way. And Ecclesiastes is willing to run that through with a lance and be like, <laughs> nope, you can mess it all up. and it, it, Or things still succeed, or you can do everything right and still have a terrible life. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. Suck it up. Um, and in the midst of that, you get Song of Solomon. Like, it doesn't offer any answers but to say, like, but when you find somebody who just like makes your world go round, yeah, celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all ways of dealing with the, the messiness and the beauty and the terribleness of, of the world that we live in. Um, do we want to open the can of worms at all on Job, too? Uh, any, of, any other things we want to say about Job while we're in wisdom literature?
1: It is one of those books that a lot of people debate as to whether it should be in, categorized as history or wisdom and poetry. I personally like to put it in Wisdom and Poetry, both because there is a lot of poetry in it, as well as I don't think it was written about an actual historical person. That it's more of an acknowledgement that bad things happen to even good people, Mm -hmm. and that it's not, like, that's just... It's almost
2: like a thought experiment where it's like let's imagine a best case scenario where here's a person who's done everything right and has vast fortune and a terrible thing happens to him and what are the various, because really the book of Job boils down to uh, trying to answer why do terrible things happen in the world and Mm -hmm. where does, why why, do we get an explanation from God and after all the terrible things happen to Job and his kids are killed and his fortune is taken away his three friends show up and for one week they're decent friends and they just sit on the ash heap and say nothing. And then when they open their mouths, all, all of them in various ways trying to explain away or theologize what God must be doing, that God must yeah. be punishing him, or he must have done something. The whole, the whole middle chunk of the book, I mean easily two-thirds, three-quarters of the book, is Job's friends telling him he must have messed up, and Job defending himself saying, no, I didn't mess up. And then you get to the end when God shows up and tells the friends, you were wrong to speak up, <laughs> you should have just stayed quiet on the ash heap um job is right doing mad these terrible things happen and then when god finally talks to job uh job is like okay i, I still don't understand i'm undone I, I i ask questions above my pay grade and job never finds out the whole behind the scenes the devil was at work satan mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing maybe this is a moment too to say this about the book of job because i think this is one of those themes or important ideas that we often skip over or miss and that's that while it is true that there is this wicked figure who appears early on who does all these terrible things to job and his family we treat it like it's his first name like phil or bob or susan mm-hmm. but satan is actually a title it's a it's a role it's a, the word for adversary or like like a prosecuting attorney and that in the hebrew bible there's less a picture of there's two co-equal forces like the Mm -hmm. good side and the bad side of the force and there's more that god is sovereign over the universe and god has this whole array of invisible cosmic angelic heavenly beings some of which are pleasant and nice and have wings and some of whom like do the dirty work of being the accuser and here the satan and in the hebrew it's always the satan not like Mm -hmm. it's his name but the satan does and only does what God, Yahweh, or Elohim gives him permission to do, which, it, 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 it's just an interesting dynamic. Instead of treating it like the Bible is a story of who will win, good or evil, the Hebrew Bible sort of treats it like Satan is God's prosecuting attorney who has this role that is a limited role, but that God allows to do things. And it's just different than the way most of us grew up with like cartoons with an angel and a demon on somebody's mm-hmm. shoulder, and they are like, co-equal, and you wonder who's going to win the day. And that's not really how the book of Job sees it. And even that figure of Satan, like, it, that, here here's an image of Satan as a figure under God's control and under God's, like, setting parameters mm-hmm. and boundaries of what Satan is allowed to do, which is different than how we usually picture it.
0: And for me, the Book of Job, besides just the idea that you can do everything right and still lose it all, mm-hmm. just like we said with Ecclesiastes yeah. and some of the other wisdom books, is in those closing chapters when God is just, you know, raking Job up one side down the other with all that, you know, he has done and everything and saying, well, where were you when When all this was created and everything? Um, Just helps me to point out to the sovereignty of God Mm -hmm. and and just the idea that, you know what? God does know everything that's going on with us. And yeah, sometimes he allows things. He doesn't cause things to happen. I want to make that very clear, but he allows things to happen I think, to strengthen our faith in him. And so for me, that's a good... Anytime I'm going through something that I'm like, okay, God, why are you allowing me... Yeah. this to happen to me, I go back to Job and I'm like, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're sovereign, I'm not. It's okay. Like,
2: and I think it's important, too, that this book gets remembered and held on to, that all the middle steps of all the people arguing back and forth gets got held on to. Like, it would have been a whole lot easier to make a Notes version of Job that was like five chapters long <laughs> Um but it's almost like you need the wrestling, and you need the because yeah. well, when you're going through something terrible, like you need the space to be able to be angry at God. And I think uh, another thing that this book allows for mm-hmm. is the biblical mm-hmm. permission to be mad at God. And uh, and th- in the end, Job doesn't get yelled at by uh, by God for for bringing all these charges up against God. God just says, "All right, if you want to if you want to have this conversation, you got to understand the universe is a lot bigger than you and your mm-hmm. you know first world problems, Job." Um, but um, that it's okay for us to be mad at god and that um it's okay for us to bring questions it's okay for us to wrestle what is probably the least helpful is to try and think it's our job to apologize for god or defend god Mm -hmm. like that we have to come up with excuses for god when like sometimes things aren't fair and there's no good answer just yeah things sometimes things are not fair um and i think that's worth lifting up rather than The impulse of religious people, whether they were Job's friends or us who are religious professionals, is to always find like some, well, you must have deserved this when this bad thing happened, Mm -hmm. or you must have brought this on, or, you know. There's a Simpsons episode when um, Ned Flanders' wife dies. Um, I think it's the one where his wife dies. And um, he asks his pastor, Reverend Lovejoy, about whether God brought on this terrible calamity. And... Reverend Lovejoy, who like is the caricature of all preachers, um, says, "Well, there's a short answer with an if, and there's a long <laughs> answer with the but." Um, and it's, it's it's like it's almost like he sees his job is to make is to be God's PR person and make God look mm-hmm. good, rather than just leave the. Sometimes things are terrible, and we don't get answers. And you got God's got to be strong enough to take our angriest questions and our worst punches and I think part of the end of Job's story is when we're done throwing all those punches God doesn't walk away God doesn't say oh you got me too mad or you upset me Mm -hmm. God sticks through it no matter how many punches we have to throw at God Um, if I remember incorrectly too I remember um, Gustavo Gutierrez wrote a really cool book about Job and he says the whole point of the book is to learn disinterested love that it, do I love people for what they will do for me, and do I love mm-hmm. God for what they will do for what God will do for me, or am I willing to mm-hmm. love God regardless of whether they get anything in return for it? And Gutierrez's point is, and in the ingenuine love isn't about what I get in return, mm-hmm. in part because that's how God loves us. That God doesn't say, "I love these human beings because one day they'll praise me forever in heaven and I'll get that in return." That God loves us just because God loves us, and that that's what we're drawn into as well. And maybe it's an important question for us to ask: Do we only love God because we think we're getting something in return? Um, and if so, is that, is, is that really loving God or loving ourselves and we want to use God as a vehicle toward it? Um, and Job makes us ask those difficult questions.
0: I think some of his friends even bring up those kind of Yeah. Like, well, you know, if they bring up that exact argument, and mm-hmm. um, that's good.
2: That's yeah. Good stuff. So, um, I guess at the end of all this, the wisdom literature doesn't give a solid answer so much as make it okay to live with all these questions, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's an important thing to note. Sometimes we treat the Bible like. It is the resource of answers, like your kids' you know mathematics book. The world of the answers are in the back of the book, or something like that. And the the at least the wisdom literature sometimes will offer helpful hints about. Well, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Work hard, and you won't end up hungry in winter time. Um, but other points, the wisdom literature is able to live with the questions, and you can sometimes do everything right, still have things come glue and still God is good, and it's worth being here in the world, in this world that is both beautiful and terrible at the same time. So, I guess we're going to keep having to live in those questions.
0: Sounds like a plan.
2: So next time we're going to spend some time in the book, the, the, the hymn book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, and we hope you join us next time. See you
0: Thanks. Bye.